0: Are you interested in joining the Air Force JAG Corps? You can learn more information at airforce.com slash JAG. That's J-A-G. You can also find us on Instagram at Air Force JAG Recruiting, on Facebook at U.S. Air Force JAG Corps, and on LinkedIn at Air Force JAG Corps. You may also call us at 1-800-JAG-USAF. That's one 1-800- 800 Five two four eight seven two three, or you may email us at, Air at gmail.com. In this episode, we interviewed another contestant from the seventh annual National Security Law Writing Competition. At the time of recording this episode, the winners of the competition had not yet been announced. However, we are happy to announce that the interviewee in this episode, Major Edwin Kissel, achieved first place in that competition. Second place went to Major Matthew Ormsby, who was interviewed in episode 69. And third place was Major Jessica Torado, who was interviewed in episode 68. Be sure to go back to those episodes if you missed them. You may have also heard a prior interview with Major Kissel back in July on orbital debris. In this episode, he's going to expand upon that topic more and delve into his paper on how Russia, China, and other great power competitors can take advantage of gaps in space and environmental laws in the gray zone. Enjoy! <laughs>
1: We are joined today by Major Edwin Kissel, who is one of the writers who is competing in the 2022 National Security Law Writing Competition. That is um, presented by the Air Force Judge Advocate General School with uh, support and sponsorship from the JAG School Foundation, Um, Major Kissel. Uh, submitted a paper titled Strategic Competition Implications for Commercial Space Operations, and he's here to talk to us about that and the ideas contained in that paper today. Um, Major Kissel, could you uh, introduce
2: yourself, please? Absolutely. Thank you, Charlie, for the uh, introduction. So I'm uh, Major Edwin Kissel. I'm a judge advocate with the United States Air Force, and I'm currently assigned to Space Systems Command um, in El Segundo, California. And I became interested in space law um, during my time in the JAG Corps working within space enterprise, as well as the space law course that I took at uh, George Washington University uh, while earning my environmental law LLM. And the perspective I bring is that I see space law as a certain parcel of environmental law. Uh, space law involves. Um, responsible behavior and uh, use of a resource in the extraterrestrial environment
1: right and so this year's uh topic for the national security law writing competition was how national security law impacts america's strategic competition in the gray zone so the gray zone kind of encompasses a whole lot of different ideas in that um, space between um, peace and outright war, uh, including operations in space. So that was kind of the angle that you took discussing some of the ways that national security law impacts that specifically space law can impact that. So generally speaking, can you kind of outline just the broad strokes of your paper and the thesis therein?
2: Certainly. So uh, I, I take a look at gray zone activities, so, which are adversarial actions falling short of outright war. And gray zone activities can encompass um, aggressive action that deliberately avoids the red line to trigger conflict. It uh, can encompass non-attributable actions done through proxies or intermediaries as well as bullying to force the hand of an adversary to escalate conflict. And I look at gray zone activities uh, and the implications for commercial uh, space entities because um, commercial entities operating in space are not immune to these kind of aggressive activities from competitor nations. Um, When you look at the development of space, government actors were exclusively in the space domain up until about the 1980s. However, uh, we've seen since then the rapid growth of commercial entities uh, launching operating satellites. And it's not just commercial entities acting as defense contractors either. It's, um, you know, you may have space companies that uh, perform National security services for the Department of Defense, but then they also have entirely uh, civilian um, operations as well for the civ- uh, for the civil sector. However, because a lot of these um, space technologies and commercial actors um, do serve a national security role, um, they can be subject to um, the same gray zone activities from strategic competitors, um, so that that's why I think it's important to to highlight this issue of um, gray zone activities in space, not just from a uh, government user and government actor standpoint, but from uh, the commercial side as well.
1: Yeah, one of the one of the Uh, passages from your paper says that commercial spacecraft can serve both government and private sector requirements on the same platform. Many commercial space technologies can provide dual use for civilian and military purposes, making them potential targets of gray zone aggression, kind of like you just mentioned. Wanted to just kind of dig into that just a little bit and, and get you to explain how that comes about. Are we talking about one, um, actual piece of hardware that at the same time is being used for national security as well as commercial uses or or how does that how does it actually look out there
2: yeah absolutely i mean you can have the department of defense as a client for a uh, commercial space entity that's the same as you know several other clients or even clients from uh, different nations um, using the same technology from the same uh, satellite platform. And um, a lot of, when we talk about dual-use technology, so a lot of the space technologies that the Department of Defense relies on, such as the global positioning system um, for positioning, navigation, timing, uh, remote sensing activity, um, communications, these are also, uh, the same kind of uses that the civilian sector employs. It's just um, Department of Defense uses for the national security enterprise, while um, the, the civil sector uh, uses it for, uh, you know, even activities of day-to-day living. So, um, yeah, you you can certainly have, um, you know, one satellite or, or one, um, System of technology supporting both a national security purpose and a civil sector purpose, uh, which c- can render that civil sector use um, as a target when you when you're looking at gray zone operations.
1: Right, and that kind of brings us to the next part of what sort of possible aggressive action could they be? opened up to by being dual use and what sort of um what are some of these uh concerns we have that not necessarily just blowing them up which might be a little past the gray zone but short of that what are some of the um concerns uh concerning possible actions against these devices or um, spacecraft are we talking about
2: some possible actions you may see would be jamming radio frequency uh, to prevent the satellite from communicating with the Earth station. You could see um, the creation of an orbital debris field, um, basically creating space junk through deliberate collisions in the path of the satellite to either cause the operator to have to make some alterations to that satellite flight path um, or risk collision of the satellite and uh, damage or destruction to that uh, resource. Um, You can even see on the horizon uh, potential for using focused directed energy from the sun to uh, fry the components of of another spacecraft. So outside of a kinetic, ground to satellite missile anti-satellite missile there, there are several activities that you could see falling within the gray zone and that could affect both military satellites as well as uh, commercial satellites and, and uh there's
1: one other thing i wanted to ask you about it sounded like there's um a possibility that soon there will be a satellite or a spacecraft up there designed primarily to do debris cleanup, but could also be employed to possibly disrupt the mission of other satellites. Is that something that uh, we're looking at too?
2: When you're looking at the technology for orbital debris removal, where you can have satellites that use nets or tethers, or can even swallow a smaller satellite um, to bring it out of uh, low Earth orbit, for instance, to either burn up in the atmosphere or send it out to a graveyard orbit. Well, that same technology could be used to uh, capture an active satellite and um, destroy it or uh, collect it and bring it down to Earth. So there, there is some concern, um, including from our uh, competing, uh, From there is some concern, including from Strategic competitors on on the other side of the spectrum. That uh, that those same technologies, um, you know, you have uh, Russian inspector satellites, for instance, that can do these sort of on-orbit services. Um, that those could be used to um, uh, to take out active satellites as well.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. So all of these things with the uh, the other satellites, the debris, the intentional debris field creation, possible jamming and directed energy disruption. All of those are some of the kind of threats that we're discussing here. And the point of your paper was kind of here are some proposed changes or advances in space law that could help mitigate the possibility of this becoming an even more active gray zone um, between uh, us and our strategic competitors. So, that begs the question: we'll, You know, why doesn't the current law uh, do more to 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 mitigate that? So, can you kind of give us a little rundown of some of the major um, sources of current space law and the the limitations that are uh, that are in those?
2: Absolutely. And, and so every discussion of space law starts with the Outer Space Treaty, which is uh, it's over 50 years old and it forms the bedrock of uh, what we know as space law. It sets out a general framework for behavior in space, um, that uh, space is the province of all humankind. Um, space is to be useful, peaceful purpose, purposes and exploration. Uh, Unfortunately, the Outer Space Treaty uh, does not provide any enforcement mechanism. And if one nation believes that another nation is engaging in harmful interference with its actions, the Outer Space Treaty only provides that you can seek consultation. So uh, unfortunately, while it does set out, Uh, some aspirational language on responsible behavior, Uh, there is no way to enforce the provisions of the Outer Space Treaty. A few years after the Outer Space Treaty, we had the Liability Convention. And the Liability Convention focuses on assessing liability and monetary damages for satellites that crash into the earth or satellites that crash into other satellites. Liability Convention is outdated because it only includes national governments as parties and so it does not provide commercial entities any recourse uh, except through the consent of or except through the national government asserting the claim of the commercial entity. And it does. while it does provide a claims commission process to resolve who's at fault and resolve the issue of quantifying damages, any claims commission award is expressly non-binding, which, again, brings you back to the same problem as the Outer Space Treaty, where there's no enforcement mechanism. We get to the International Telecommunication Union Treaty. And this one is interesting. So it governs allocation of space within geostationary orbit. And it prohibits harmful interference with communication services uh, with some certain exceptions for um, I- including um, uh, open conflict. Um, but the, what makes the International Telecommunications Union Treaty. Interesting is that it actually provides for binding arbitration uh, for any claims brought under the treaty, and so that's the direction that it would be good for space law to move, especially to try to quell and reduce the the threat of gray zone activities that is providing some kind of enforcement mechanism, but uh, we're, we're not. We're, we're only there for a limited um, scope at this point. Um, in recent years have seen uh, the U.S. and other nations uh, get together to develop orbital debris mitigation standards, which essentially are these are things you will do as an operator of a spacecraft to ensure that your spacecraft does not uh, create additional face jump. Uh, however, these standards are expressly non-binding. So again, no enforcement mechanism. Um, their orbital debris mitigation standards are more along the lines of soft law, where you're trying to get a general international consensus on norms of behavior in space, and then from there you build up to try to, to get to an enforceable System, but we're we are uh, far away from that. Um, w- within domestic space law, you have licensing requirements for uh, launch and uh, operation, and so both the uh, Federal Aviation Administration, which covers satellite launch, spacecraft launch, as well as the Federal Communications Commission, which governs uh, satellites that operate um, using communication frequencies uh, to and from the U.S. Um, There are increasingly stringent collision avoidance standards that are baked into uh, the regulations required to get a license. Um, And then for launch licensing, the uh, spacecraft has to be insured for launch plus 30 days after launch. Um, under the regulations, so that that's the current scope of um, space law. The main limitations are you don't have enforcement mechanisms, and it doesn't really provide any protections for commercial entities uh, from gray zone actions of strategic competitors.
1: Right, so kind of in a perfect world, we'd want something that could bridge the gap between what we what you just discussed and something that would do a better job of deterring some of those uh, dangerous possibilities we discussed earlier. So that kind of is the meat of your paper here, where you proposed uh, a number of uh, advances and tweaks in current. Laws, um, can you uh, start off by talking uh, about the the first one of those that you listed in your paper where you um, you compare it to something that we already have on Earth um, in America with, with environmental concerns and how that would look applied to the to the space domain So
2: we have the National Environmental Policy Act, and the National Environmental Policy Act does apply to um, obtaining a launch license or operator permit, because it, it applies to any major federal action. Um, however, we don't really see it applied to uh, in the extent that it could be. Um, it doesn't really seem to cover, or, or at least the analysis of the effects of activities in space seems to escape the process used by the Federal Aviation Administration So Communications Commission when they are issuing licenses. So
1: and that's the that's kind of the subject of a of a current lawsuit, right? Can you uh give us just briefly what that uh what kind of question was asked there.
2: Yeah, and so you have launch licensing that has higher environmental assessment an analysis requirement than an, an operator's license, and so you have disparate result where where satellites that are launched from the United States um, may undergo a more extensive analysis than satellites launched elsewhere, but they're operating with a license uh, from the United States, and so my my proposal is to level the playing field and make sure that um, orbital um, debris or um, potential effects from operations and space, to include uh, the potential of a satellite to experience gray zone activities and, and need to survive that without creating uh, orbital debris should be included in, in environmental effects analysis. With the current litigation, uh, we're tracking the case of Viasat versus the Federal Communications Commission. Viasat is a um, commercial satellite internet provider that has three satellites that operate in geostationary orbit, and it's suing the Federal Communications Commission over the um, operator license that was granted to Starlink. Starlink being a constellation that um, inc- will include anywhere from 17,000 to 30,000 uh, satellites in a low Earth orbit mega constellation. And Viasat alleges that in granting the operating license uh, to Starlink, that the, the FCC failed to properly analyze the environmental impacts for the increase. Of light pollution at night um, due to this mega constellation. And we're starting to see more articles coming out about this, this potential um, issue where these large mega constellations are brightening the night sky, making it more difficult for uh, astronomers. And so you're, and, and you may even have incidental effects on. Wildlife and and so on uh, from a terrestrial standpoint, um, but my proposal would be, and it, it'll be interesting to see how that litigation um, shakes out. But my proposal would be um, to, to make sure that to heighten the environmental effects analysis that needs to be uh, completed for both launch licensing and operating licensing, so that you have. Um, so, so that you ensure that satellites, if they encounter gray zone activities, that they will be able to survive in some way, shape, or form, and avoid creating a, additional orbital debris. That's how I would apply the or recommend applying the National Environmental Policy Act to this problem.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. And so that that's one part of it uh, that has to do more specifically with uh, kind of the debris uh threat in the gray zone uh what are what's some of the
2: other uh, proposals that you had so when you look at insurance requirements so a, a satellite that receives a launch license only needs to be um only needs to carry insurance for launch plus 30 days and with the increase of the orbital collision risk, the increased risk of a commercial satellite encountering gray zone activities, I believe that 30 days would be insufficient and instead the insurance should cover the satellite's entire lifetime because then you are um, making sure that the operator of the satellite carries adequate insurance um, for any Claims that arise, but also for um, the loss of use of that satellite, which is is pretty costly, um, and making sure that, that there's a you know so, some kind of um, some kind of way to spread the risk of gray zone activities among all of the potentially affected users that operate in space. Um, Additionally, it's we're developing. Orbital debris remediation technology, which is um, a, a very good thing, to be able to begin to clean up the orbital environment, especially from um, the effects of prior gray zone activities like anti-satellite missile tests um, by China, Russia, and the United States. Uh, it would be good to for the federal government to indemnify. Those um, commercial entities that develop this orbital debris removal technology um, so that uh, if you do have a claim where a strategic competitor is trying to uh, use the legal process through lawsuit or whatnot to um, stop this entity from operating, um, because they they don't want the orbital environment cleaned up. Uh, there should be some kind of indemnification where the federal government says, okay, this is a common good that needs to happen, and we will step in and make sure that these companies engaging in this activity are, are protected in in their conduct. Um, so I, I believe indemnification for debris remediation would be um, a, a good thing.
1: Yeah, it does seem like it could act as a way to encourage more companies to get involved in that venture. If you can remove that risk category from those kind of operations.
2: Yeah, because it it serves both a a national security um, purpose as well as a just common good of cleaning up the environment purpose as well.
1: Right. Yep. So moving on from from that part uh, to one of your final proposals, uh, which is sanctions, international sanctions against uh, actors who step over the line in this space domain with these gray zone activities. What did you uh, what did you propose there?
2: Well, looking at how things are shaking out with current events and the uh, international response, to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, imposing unprecedented sanctions on uh, the nation as well as individual oligarchs. And um, it, it will be interesting to see how that affects both uh, Russia's activities as well as other potential strategic competitors. And, and I think that sanctions um, should be applied not only for terrestrial uh, activities and, and aggression, but but also um, aggression in space as well, because what you do in space has a direct impact on uh, daily life on Earth. So, um, you know, when when you're looking at the theories of punishment, and we talk about um, specific and general deterrence, the, the idea is that sanctions... Create specific deterrence for the the entity engaging in the bad behavior um, because it makes it more difficult for them to continue to engage in in that behavior but also it provides a general deterrence to other strategic competitors who may be considering engaging in irresponsible behavior to to show them that there are consequences for these kinds of actions. So I believe that sanctions should absolutely be on the table when you're looking at um, a response to gray zone activities in space. Yeah, that, that makes
1: a lot of sense. Kind of paired with the other more uh, defensive prophylactic sort of measures that you talked about, having that uh, that big stick at our disposal the uh, as far the international community's disposal certainly seems like it should be a, a good way to round out this legal approach to discouraging people from getting or nation states from getting too crazy uh against other people's assets in space so that uh that all makes a lot of sense we appreciate the uh the effort you put in uh to coming up with this and writing it and submitting it and walking us through uh all of your your proposals for this uh this new regime in space law uh what uh what are some uh parting thoughts you can leave us with major kissel
2: so ultimately it would be good to have some kind of binding international treaty that defines harmful interference covering gray zone activities and and providing a binding enforcement mechanism. Um, But unfortunately, we're not anywhere close to getting there. And um, and, until if and when we do eventually get there, uh, we need pragmatic solutions um, to provide protection for uh, commercial space operators. And so that's what I'm seeking to do here is to... Um, apply an environmental perspective to um, develop um, those protections within the space domain. And space is only going to become um, more congested. We're seeing more mega constellations. Um, It's a contested resource among strategic competitors, and there's only increasing um, risk of um, harm from gray zone activities as tensions escalate. Um, And and of course, commercial entities are not immune to gray zone activities because um, a lot of the technology that commercial entities provide has a dual military and civilian purpose, which makes them targets of gray zone aggression. And and additionally, um, from a national security perspective, we source a lot of our uh, capabilities in space from commercial entities. So um, we're we're all part and parcel in this together, uh, government actor as well as commercial operator. So um, we need common sense international and, and domestic legal approaches to protect space as a resource for the use of all humankind, as uh, set out in the Outer Space Treaty. And and I'm thankful to. Be able to contribute to the, the discussion and uh, the development of state law. Yes, sir. Thank you for
1: that wrap up. And we're uh, we're thankful for your contributing to that discussion too. Thanks again for lending your time and your expertise to not only the writing competition, but also to our podcast here. Uh, Major Edwin Kissel, uh, thanks again, and we will talk to you again soon, I hope. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General School Podcast. You can find this and all our available episodes, transcriptions, and show notes at podcast. You can also find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Please give us a like, a rating, a follow, or a subscription. Nothing from this show should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issues. Nothing in this show is endorsed by the federal government, the United States Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of the guests and hosts. Thanks.